Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I am here, hello, with Sarah Jane Bentley. Hi, Sarah Jane. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. We're about to discuss Act 5 of The Tragedy of Othello. And the first question I'm going to ask you, we're not there yet. The first question I'm going to ask you is to give me one word to describe this final final act. But That is a tough challenge. Right? But, right? Yeah. Um, Listeners don't know this because the podcasts are released kind of semi-weekly, I think. But Sarah Jane, I had terrible, terrible computer trouble this week, which was the cause of a delay for us. And I want to tell you about, it was like one of these tragedies that was redeemed, okay? So here's the story. Well, all good tragedies need a delay, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this is definitely, we were delayed. It exactly the right. But it time. might not even be a tragedy. When you hear it, you might think, "Oh, that's not a tragedy. That's a comedy. That's a happy ending." So, I think on Tuesday, no Wednesday of this week, you know, I'm a professional writer and I'm writing. I'm working on a deadline, and all of a sudden, the trackpad on my Mac won't depress. Meaning, like, I can't click my mouse. In essence, so everything is now in a state of like panic because I need to get this fixed. So fortunately, there's a Mac store just two miles from me. So I rush down the road and I go in and the Mac guy behind the counter is really helpful. And he says, 
yeah, I know what this is. This model tends to have like the battery starts, whoever heard of this, the battery starts swelling on these Macs when they get kind of old. And so because it's swelling, it won't allow the trackpad to depress. That's the problem. Your your Apple was growing, essentially. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so he says, well, I've got, you know, kind of bad news and worse news. The bad news is our tech isn't here today. The worst news is I've seen this, you know, I've seen this problem before. It's a, it's going to cost you $700. Oh yeah. Right. That's going to sting. I say, okay. So I put my computer up and I go back the old fashioned way and I'm just writing out by hand the things that I need to write out, which is not the worst thing in the world. I take the Mac in the next day because the, the tech guy is back and I explain the problem and he says, okay, I got to order the part 10 business days. And I was like, 10? okay, yes, 10 business days. And it, you know, like you've been in this situation before, I think. It's not going to be 10 business days, but they've got to kind of cover themselves. Oh, I see. Right. He says, I don't think it's going to be that long, but I've got to to say 10. Okay, so. This is the maximum, yeah. This is the maximum. So I'm now hunkered down, going to like figure out how to like do what I've got to do for the next 10 business days. They call me three business days later and I go in and he says, well, I've got really good news. The good news is that Apple Computers is really conscientious about their products, and they knew that this battery swelling problem was happening, you know, in multiple and a lot of different computers of this era. In that intuitive way that Apple do. (laughs) Right. They're listening to this right now. And (laughs) he said, so the good news is the repair, which is basically an entire new guts of your computer, because... The the battery is attached to like everything at the guts of the computer in this model. So they're replacing it for free. And there's a little bit more good news. Your screen, which kind of has gotten a little bit bubbly, just wear and tear, they recognize that also is a manufacturing default. And so they replaced that for free. So I walked out from the Mac store with almost an entirely new computer and it cost me a little bit of labor is basically for free. So you got a completely refurbished piece of kit. I did. I got a completely refurbished piece of kit. Nice. (laughs) Right. I don't know what that means, but I'm going to agree with it. (laughs) (laughs) My husband has this theory that, um, they're all, all the machines are like programmed to revolt at a certain time so that you go and buy a new one. But you know, I, I don't know if that's true. It's possible. What do they call that? Built in. Um, um, oh, there's a word. What's the word for it? I don't know. Degradation. I'll, I don't know. Yeah. I'll you think of it. Me? So Sarah Jane, this is the penultimate podcast on Othello. We will do a questions and answers podcast on Othello, but let's start with, you know, this is the, this is the final act of the play, a play that we have we know what's going to happen before we get there. And now we've experienced it. Choose one word to describe this act for us. I would say incomplete. Incomplete. Yes. What would you say? No, wait, hold on. Why incomplete? Um, well, if in a tragedy when the bad bleed, the tragedy is good, 
then Shakespeare here is doing something slightly new where mm-hmm. he doesn't give us a predictable ending. So there should be a lot more bodies on the stage. We've got Desdemona, Amelia, Othello, Rodrigo. Cassio really should be dead. Um, Iago really should be dead. And so I think the fact that Cassio and Iago live means that um, there's a kind of incompleteness in that sense. Also, there's also a completeness, but I can, yeah, we can talk about it later. (laughs) I I completely understand um, Iago should die to Mm. kind of complete the tragedy. Why Cassio? Well, because he is stabbed by Iago uh-huh. in Act 5, Scene 1. Uh, sorry, by Rodrigo. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's a bit surprising that he, he kind of, he, it's not a fatal wound. He survives. I suppose he's necessary for the revelation of the extent of Iago's malice. That yeah. he needs a character who can convey that. Yeah. Um, before we get too deep into it, let's, can we recount Sarah Jane and by we, I mean you, can you recount the main plot points of act five? I'm sure you can help me out with this. (laughs) (laughs) So how does it begin? So we're in the darkness again in act five, scene one, and we're straight in with Rodrigo carrying out the murder that Iago has subcontracted to him, essentially. Cassio is meant to be Iago's uh, job. Then Rodrigo bodges it. Mm-hmm. Iago kind of raises the alarm. Um, Graciano comes on the stage. And in the darkness and in the commotion, Iago also stabs Rodrigo. Then um, Bianca comes in, who we haven't spoken about much, but she's, she's almost like Cassio's mistress in Cyprus. Yeah. And she's obviously really upset and Iago, the opportunist, starts to try to pin the blame on Bianca and seems to be suggesting that Bianca has stabbed Cassio. Uh-huh. And that is sort of where the scene ends, at 5 scene 1. In 5-2, yeah. No, I don't think you missed anything. 5-2 okay. is, this is it. This is the conclusion of our play. What happens? Well, it's very... Somber to begin with, and peaceful, in fact, with Desdemona asleep in the bed and Yag, uh, Othello um, just enchanted by her beauty, and he kisses her repeatedly, and he doesn't want to kill her. Um, but he, he realises essentially, or he convinces himself that he must, because this is his duty, because if he doesn't, she will betray more men. And so we're in this strange kind of situation where he doesn't want to kill her, but he feels like he has to because that's his job. So she wakes up, they have a heartbreaking conversation. Um, He smothers her. Emilia immediately comes in to tell him about the kerfuffle in the streets and how Cassio is stabbed. But she senses that there's something wrong in the room and she quickly discovers that Desdemona is in the bed and has been killed by Othello. So she starts to accuse him and question him and finds out that Iago has lied to him, but Othello doesn't believe her. And she's in great danger because Othello's saying, really, you need to stop talking, woman, or I'm going to, I'm going to silence you for yeah. good. 
at that point she calls out and um, Montano, Gratiano, Iago and loads of other characters come onto the scene. And then we get this um, really unusual moment in the play where Iago actually tells the truth. <laughs> she says, Emilia says, did you ever tell Othello that Desdemona was false? And Iago says, I did. Mm-hmm. And quite soon after that, Iago stabs her. So she dies on the bed alongside Desdemona. Uh, then the kind of more high-status characters like Graciano and Montano intervene, and um, Graciano kind of isolates Othello in the bedroom and is tasked with taking care of Iago as well. So he's sort of, Iago's sort of tied up. Um, all of the plot is revealed through Cassio and Rodrigo. So Othello finally realizes that he was lied to and that Desdemona was completely innocent. So while he's then trapped in the room under guard by himself, he discovers a Spanish sword that he has, a dagger. And he says to Graciano, you better let me out or else I'm going to do something I might regret. Graciano says, no, you can't. You're not going to. You can't. You haven't got any means of it. Um, Othello says, oh, yes, I have. So Othello eventually gets the door open, Graciano comes in, and um, he has an audience then for his final tragic act in the denouement. And he gives uh, quite a stern speech and a pitiful speech in some ways about how he's been unlucky and how the state must remember all of the good things he's done. And then he takes revenge upon himself and he dies too. And then a few lines after that, the play ends. That's it. Iago's still alive. Iago's still alive. I want to ask you what you think happens to Iago after the play ends. But first, I want to read this final speech from Othello. So this is literally the last page um, of the play for me. Soft you, a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they know it. No more of that, I pray you. In your letters, when you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am. Nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. Then must you speak of one that loved not wisely, but too well. Of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, threw a pearl away rather than all his tribe. Of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused, to the melting mood, dropped tears as fast as the Arabian trees, the medicinal gum. Set you down this, and say besides that Aleppo once, where a malignant and turbanid Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote himself thus. And that's the moment where he stabs him. Where he stabs himself, excuse me. Um... What do you make of this speech, Sarah Jane? Does, does it do anything to rehabilitate Othello in your eyes? I mean, he, he, he seems like there's a couple of things going on. One, he's trying to kind of be the guardian of his reputation when he's gone. And I think at this point he knows that he's going to kill himself. But he's telling how he wants his story told. Is there anything in this speech that makes you think and in his act of killing himself that he, did he act honorably at the end? 
I would have liked to have seen a kind of metanoia, a repentance, but there's no call for that in the genre of tragedy. Um, I think he says some things that really do evoke our pity for him. So he doesn't want to be remembered maliciously. He still wants to control, as you say, what people think of him. He says, naught I did in hate earlier. He says that his soul and body has been ensnared by Iago. And then we get this interesting comment that he loved not wisely, but too well. And I think that's true, at least. That, that is true. That he's not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme that he was, um, he was corrupted, he was twisted, he was manipulated by Iago to an extreme extent. And we, we've definitely seen that in the play, and we've discussed it. Would you agree that he... About not, what, not wisely, but too well. Yeah, do you think yeah, that? I don't think I agree. I mean, <sighs> I can certainly agree that he did not love wisely. Yes. Um, so... To isolate it, did he love too well? Yeah. I just don't know about that. I think he loved um, with great fervor, but I don't think that he loved Desdemona well. <laughs> I mean, sorry to make it like a slapstick point, or else she would still be alive and he wouldn't have strangled her with his own hands. I think there's um, a sense here, well, he says it earlier in the act, that he believes that what he's doing is sacrificing Desdemona and that he has to kill her because it's the right thing to do and that he loves her so well that he won't even allow his, his love for her to overcome what is right. And so in sacrificing her, he's preventing her from cuckolding other men or leading other men astray into adultery. Now it's, it's a, a twisted, maybe a twisted kind of reasoning, or maybe it's a very, very righteous kind of reasoning. I don't know. He says, thou dost stone my heart and makes me call what I intend to do a murder, which I thought a sacrifice. But d doesn't all that sort of take for granted that she was untrue to him? And if he had actually loved her well, he would have seen that she was true to him. I mean, I think like, if you grant his suspicion, which is false, but if you grant his suspicion, then in some kind of, like you said, in some twistic lo twisted logic, you can see that he believes himself to be acting righteously. But I think that the, the die is cast when he fails to see her for what she is. Mm. You know, in act three and in act two, when the serpent begins to bite him and kind of like say in his ear, she's untrue, she's untrue. Yeah. That's where it seems to me like his claim that he loved too well, it started to falter way back there. And just because he, in according to his own like, sense of righteousness, acted rightly at the end, mm. I don't know that that can cover him giving in to jealousy at the beginning of the play. Yeah, I, I do agree with that to an extent, yeah. I think I just maybe have a bit more pity for Othello than you do at this point, I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, that's probably but, fair. Um, 
I, I, I have another question I think that follows on this, but not if you're going to make a, if you're going to follow a point now. I was, I can't quite remember what it was. I was going to maybe say. Because I was, maybe because I was talking. <laughs> um, yeah. And now I can't remember what I was going to, yes, I do. Is the jealousy that drives this play forward, the jealousy in Othello, was it there from the beginning of the play or did it need to be planted in him by Iago? Let's see if we can tie these things together because I have just remembered what, what I was going to say. So was the jealousy there from the beginning? Was there a kind of seed, a problem that Iago then just helped to grow? I think yes. I think I would agree with that. And I think comparing Othello to Job is interesting because there's a point quite early in the book of Job where Job says, that which I did fear has come upon me. And I wonder if that's, yeah, if that maybe also is the case for Othello. Um, I was going to, to try and compare him a bit to um, Tarquin in The Rape of Lucrece. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. You're ta- are you talking about, um, I know the kind of like origin myth. Are you talking about a document? A text? Yeah, Shakespeare's poem. I don't, I, I, I've read it, I don't know it. Okay, well, there's a very similar moment in that poem just before Tarquin goes into the chamber and commits mm-hmm. the deed, where, like Othello, he, he sort of justifies to himself that what he's doing is right. And, he, and the narrator says that Tarquin, for his prey to pray, did then begin as if the heavens would countenance his sin. And... Say that again. Tarquin, for his prey, his prey is Lucrece. Yeah. To pray did then begin, Mm. as if the heavens would countenance his sin. So just before he's about to rape her, he actually is so convinced that what he's doing is right that he kneels down and says a little prayer for her. As if heaven is going to be listening to him. Yeah. And there's a similar moment in Act 5, Scene 2 for Othello, where he says, this sorrow is heavenly, it strikes where it doth love. As if he has been commissioned by God to sacrifice Desdemona, who is this adulterous woman. Um, and he sort of justifies it to himself. And the two of them... The two characters are, as, as you say, are in the wrong. They do, they do not love well, but they're totally deluded. Now, what was the question you asked? Does, does the speech that he gives at the end kind of justify, does he, is he acting, and it's his suicide, do you see it as him acting honorably? Is it him acting honorably? Well... Or does it redeem some sense that he has a sense of honor or some sense of integrity? And do we, do we like see that? Yeah. Even despite the fact that he's done this horrible deed, he's made a grotesque error. He's still Othello is still attempting to act with some sense of integrity. Hmm. I think it does. It, it does give him a certain kind of honor. Yes although it's misfounded, perhaps. It's a really difficult question to answer. He, 
he does do the most difficult thing, which is he takes revenge upon himself. He, he has this weird sort of distancing from himself in the final act where he talks about Othello in the third person as if it's somebody else. Yeah. And then he, he has literally turned Turk, hasn't he, in this speech. And he has to kill himself in the same way that he killed a traitor, a turban Turk who'd beaten, reduced the um, Venetian state. And he kills yeah. himself in the same way that he killed that Turk. So he, um, he's certainly striving for honor according to the honor code that he abides by. But whether or not that convinces the audience that he's honorable, I'm not sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, he, he seems to be comparing himself here possibly to Judas. Judas Iscariot, yeah, who betrayed Jesus, and in that sense, he realizes that he's dishonorable. I mean, what do you think of that comparison? Yes, yeah, so the lines like the base Judean threw a pearl away, richer than all his tribe. That would be for me a moment where um, a fellow sees himself if he's going to compare himself to. To Judas, he sees himself, and that would be that would be you know a, a revealing moment that would make me think, oh yeah, he does have this sense of like, I don't know if we're, we're going to call it honor, but maybe integrity that he's willing to kind of take it on. But it's just so it's so peculiar to have that kind of couched within this this speech that's kind of like protecting his legacy. Yeah, it just it's a it's a. It's like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. I'm a man of integrity. I admit my faults. I know what I did. And what I did was comparable to Judas, the betrayer of the Messiah. Mm. But when you talk, but when you talk to me, like he's still kind of doing public relations at the beginning of that speech. I know. He even gets an audience into the room. (laughs) Yeah, right, 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 right. He gets an on-stage audience. He's already got the audience in the globe. Uh And, you know, he could perform his final act just in front of us, but he doesn't. He gets the door open and he calls them all back in. Yeah. Um, and that's right. There's, a, there's an element of propaganda here. He says that they are unlucky deeds. I think that's a bit of an understatement. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's this thing in the States, Sarah Jane, where when a, you know, a, a prominent figure, a politician or a sports hero you know, is caught doing something terribly terrible, cheating on their wife, you know, this, that, or the other. There's this kind of phrase that's developed. Um, I made mistakes in judgment, (laughs) which just sounds like it's so innocuous. It doesn't sound like nothing they need to repent to their public. I mean, that's, that's, I'm not making a judgment on whether or not they need to do that, but they're clearly trying to, you know, make yeah. amends in to kind of recover their public image. And it, yeah. it, I see you hear it over and over and over. I, I made a mistake in judgment. That's, exactly, <laughs> like, is, that's what this sounds like to me. That's exactly what Othello's doing here. And, and what the modern politicians are doing sounds very tr- sort of high and astounding and tragic in a sense that they're saying, you know, I had a, 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 a hamasha. I made an error of judgment. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. He, you're right. I think he sets out, he's quite in control, but in the speech, he actually breaks down when he starts to talk about what he's actually done. 
and realized that he was perplexed in the extreme. And then he looks at his hand, one whose hand, his hand that has just smothered Desdemona. Yeah. Away the pearl of heaven. And then he starts to cry. He, then he says that you'll have to, you see, you see how it starts off being a kind yes. of, Yes. And then it's like, actually, you're going to have to tell them I was weeping my eyes out because I'd murdered my wife. Yeah. And it, it descends into something more honest, I think, than he set out to do at the beginning of the speech. Which if, if I was an actor playing that part, I think that I would, I, if I believed in Othello and if I believed in some sort of kind of like redemptive self-knowledge for Othello, I think in the middle of that speech, when he, I think there's a turn. And the turn is away from public relations and it's a toward a, a, he really looks to see what he has done and he's, he quits the public relations and now he sees like, kind of like maybe what choice do I have, but to end my life. Exactly. And I would say it's that moment where he looks at his hand. Yeah. Right. Right. Probably there. But he still, then he still keeps speaking the imperative. He still says in his brokenness through his tears, set you down this, write this mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this kind of desperation to cling on to some kind of control about his reputation, which yeah. um, he knows is ruined. He, he says something else earlier about honor, something like, why should, here it is. He says, why should honor outlive honesty? Why should honor outlive honesty? And I spent a while thinking about that line and what he means. Does he mean why should honor himself, i.e. him as personified honor, Othello, outlive honesty, who was personified in Desdemona? Or does he mean why should reputation outlive virtue? Yeah, well, you could do it either way. I read it the former way. Mm. Why should he outlive Desdemona? But certainly, yeah. it's certainly, and maybe it's an intentional sort of double meaning. Well, I just think because we did talk in one of our other episodes about honor and, and reputation, and I wonder if um, he's interested here in, again, notions of honor and how the, um, how the world will remember him, given who he was for Venice. Yeah. And it reminds me of another of Shakespeare's poems, which I was reading this week, um, is Troilus and Crusade. And at the end of that, you have Ulysses, the old hero, talking to Achilles. And he says to Achilles, this kind of younger, stronger man, look, time is like a fashionable host. And, you know, the people will find glimmers in the dust more than in the, the guilt of a trophy. And he sort of says... Your reputation is momentary Mm. and we live in this kind of flash of light for a second and then someone comes behind you and overtakes you. And and I think maybe Othello is realizing something about the difference now between the pomp and show of reputation and being honorable and then the actual reality of honesty and virtue, which is eternal. Yeah. And I think he has a bit of a realization there. I, I hope for Othello's sake, that's what he realizes. Yeah, 
I'm always that, kind to him. <laughs> yeah, no, and I appreciate you you being kind to him. I don't want to be overly harsh on him. It's just, ooh, I look at especially when Desdemona. Desdemona is she's such a tender character. She's such an innocent character, and it's boy, it's just hard to overlook what he does. Yeah, we could, let's have a look at her death a little bit. Yeah. What do you think about her in her dying moments? And kind of, does she die honorably, I suppose? I think she does. Is there a reason to doubt it? Maybe I'm like, maybe I'm just, I, I, I'm casting all aspersions on Othello and I'm not taking a hard look at, at Desdemona. It seems to me like she does die honorably. Yeah. No, I would agree. I don't think there's, there's any sense that, um, that, that she has faults, especially at the end. She's so virtuous, isn't she? And she is um, terrified. She's really, really afraid. And she's, um, I, I think what's interesting is that when she's killed, Othello realizes that this death is not just the death of his wife or one person, that it will have cosmic proportions. Mm-hmm. It will have that will echo throughout the whole of the world. I, I think that the um, Shakespeare really, really just puts the knife in you when she, she, is, she is strangled by Othello and then she momentarily regains consciousness when yeah. it, it appears when Amelia comes into the door and Amelia asks, oh, who hath done this deed? Desdemona, having just been strangled by Othello, says, nobody, I myself, farewell, commend me to my kind Lord, farewell. So even knowing that she's going to die and even knowing that she, who did the deed, she's mm. like protecting him, which at that point, Othello has got to know, oh my goodness, I have done something absolutely horrible. I mean, he doesn't know, know yet. It hasn't been revealed by Amelia. It has been revealed by the other characters on the stage. But the fact that his wife, who he has just tried to do away with, is defending, is defending him almost literally from the death crypt. He's got to know that he's done something horrible, that he's made, a, he's made more than just a judgment and error. He uh, must have. It, just, it takes him such a long time yeah. to actually listen to what everybody's saying to him yeah she says a guiltless death i die a guiltless death i die but it's he hears emilia cassio iago rodrigo all of these characters tell him the truth and it's not until towards the end of act five scene two that he finally realizes that she was innocent yeah or i don't know if we were watching it maybe it would be different maybe it's apparent that he has realized he's wrong and yet his words aren't quite matching what he's already right right i don't know yeah he's um he's he's interesting in comparison to amelia here i think yeah okay i was just going to ask you amelia in five two at the end of this play for me a, a, i don't know if a transformation takes place or if we finally get the real amelia she refuses to 
let her mistress's death be covered up. She speaks out. She won't be silenced. She's like this incredibly brave character. And in the first, for me, four acts of the play, she's a little bit of ambiguous. I mean, she, we talked, I think it was last week about her kind of Machiavellian kind of view of life that, yeah, you should do what you need to do to get on top because once you're on top, you get to set the rules, you know? And she, she sounds a little bit like Iago. She, her character seems a bit dubious. And now at the end, when all of the stakes are on the table, she's true. She is the real deal. That's right. She's absolutely um, fearless. She will die for the truth. Yeah. Yeah. He says, so come my soul to bliss as I speak true. And she refuses to be silent. She says, yeah, I'll speak. Um, and she, I mean, in the beginning of Act 5, Scene 2, she's on her own in the bedroom with a fellow who has just killed Desdemona. And he's threatening her, threatening her life. And right. she, still, she shouts out all the more. <laughs> right. And she keeps speaking the truth. Um, so her Machiavellian... Yes, it completely disappears here. Totally. You know, it reminds me of Sarah Jane is um, Shakespeare is well known for painting these characters who are full of noble words and noble intentions, but, you know, kind of behind closed doors, they're different characters. I'm thinking of the kind of the deputy mayor in Measure for Measure, who, you know, he cracks down on the mores of Venice and he's imprisoned Isabella's brother for impregnating his fiance, you know, and he, he purports to be this character of rectitude and virtue, but behind closed doors, he propositions Isabella and you're like, Oh, he's a hypocrite. And he's a cat. Amelia strikes me as he's a cat. And Amelia is almost the opposite. She espouses this sort of Machiavellian, you know, might makes right viewpoint but then when she's really pushed hard she not just speaks the truth but she acts with great force in defense of it she's almost mm. the opposite of that deputy i can't remember the name of the deputy mayor she's almost the i opposite. don't know measure for measure very well at all okay i i'm sure there's there's a strong parallel there though the thing that's interesting as well is that when yaga comes in she at first doesn't she doesn't accept that he's been lying. She says, Yago, disprove this villain. He says, yeah. You t- yeah. he, he says, thou told him that his wife was false. I know thou didst not do that. So she even has um, a faith in Yago. And when Yago then says, tells the truth, then she is like the scales fall from her eyes and she yeah. says, yeah. the villain that who, he, who he is. And she immediately um, gravitates to the truth. So... There's an interesting moment as well where Othello is challenged in a sense, in the same way that, do you remember Desdemona and Amelia had that conversation about, you know, um, would you cuckold your husband in exchange for the whole world? Right, right. And Amelia said, yeah, because that would then mean that my husband would be in charge of the whole world. So he then he could make change. the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if we compare that statement of hers to what Othello says here in Act 5, Scene 2. Othello says, 
had she been true, had Desdemona been true, if heaven would make me such another world of one entire and perfect chrysolite, I'd not have sold her for it. So Othello, as a spouse, is the opposite of Amelia. He says, I wouldn't give the whole world for Desdemona. I would always choose Desdemona, even over a perfect alternative world that I could have all to myself. So I I still (laughs) maintain that he... He did love too well. He, he, tr- he wanted to love like the ocean and the, I don't know, the tide was kind of going in the wrong direction. So Amelia though, yes, what a, what a hero in a way at the end. Yeah. And how, how tragic that she gets stabbed by yeah. Iago. Yeah. Her own husband. Okay, Iago, his final words. I'm going to read them. Um, so by the time he says this, everything is known, what he's done has been revealed and everyone sees it. And he's basically under arrest. And he says, demand me nothing. What you know, you know, from this time forth, I will never speak word. And he does it throughout the rest of the play. What what do we expect is going to happen to Iago at the conclusion of this play? He's still alive. What do you think is going to happen off stage, Sarah Jane? Well, let's go back to what he says first. What what you know, you know. From this time forth, I never will speak word. This is astonishing coming from the character who from the very opening scene has been pouring poisonous words into the ears of the audience. Rodrigo, Othello, and now he swears that he will keep silent. And I think he does this because he's essentially realized that he can't lie anymore, that the truth is right before Othello's eyes. He's acknowledged it. Everybody else has seen it. And there's no point in him talking anymore because he can't use language for his own gain. He can't manipulate it for power. That truth has reclaimed language. So he says, okay, I'm not going to use language anymore. Won't serve that purpose for me. Mm-hmm. He realizes that it would be futile to lie now. And he doesn't say anything again. So he retreats into silence. And uh, we don't see him getting tortured, thankfully. <laughs> but that's clearly what's going to happen. Yeah. And um, I imagine that Graciano, etc., would have some pretty awful means of doing that and that the audience would be pretty aware of what those might be. Yeah. In the actual source of this play, the the story that Shakespeare borrowed from, we do get lots of details of what happens to Iago and he's imprisoned, he's um, tortured, he, I think he breaks out of prison and gets somebody else in trouble, he tells more lies. It's essentially in the in the source, this is not the end. So Shakespeare really cuts cuts him dead here and doesn't give him the satisfaction of speaking again. And I I almost think, I don't know what you what you think of this, that Yago not speaking again is basically like death for Yago. Oh thing. Because because um putting poison in people's ears is sort of akin to breathing for him. Yeah. He's so funny at the end of Act 5, Scene 1. You know that little couplet? 
I'm not sure how you read this, but he, it's almost like he's so excited. Everything's gone so badly wrong. And he <laughs> says, this is light that either makes me off or does me quite. And he's like, I can't wait to find out. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. He just loves it. He loves the fact that everything's in a state of chaos and how, you know, he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. It's a state of chaos, but in, in a way, it's also gone according to plan. It's not going precisely according to his plan, but it's going where he wants it to go. But yes. he also recognizes, like, in this final scene, it could go sideways and it's beyond my control, but it's at least, I've at least gotten to where, gotten it to where I, I want it to be. Yeah, exactly. And like we said, he didn't really have a plan. It was just, he's going to just keep pulling the threads and making things out of tune until something happens. Right. And, and boy, everything for sure got out of tune. It really played into his lap in some way, didn't it? Things like yeah. Cassio giving the handkerchief to the Exactly. Animal. Right. Right. And he just, he's an opportunist. A very, very capable opportunist. Now, I remember at the beginning when we first started talking about the play, I did have a certain, I was enchanted by Iago a bit and I've been teaching this play in lessons this week and we've just been looking at act one and um, he's a rogue and a villain, but he's so funny. And the moment that he says, yep, I did. And what you know, you know, I'm not going to speak again. Um, the play suddenly becomes extremely serious. Mm. Mm. It's all falling action at that point, isn't it? Yeah. Or wait, wait, has at that point, has Othello ended his life or is he about to? No, he hasn't done it yet. No, he hasn't done it yet. So yeah, it's, it's all, all collapsing. I mean, yeah justice in some way is being served, but everything is collapsing after he speaks the word that he's going to speak no more. And did you tell me what your word was for describing Act 5? No, I didn't. I didn't. Come on, spill it. What is it? I think it's heartbreaking. Hmm. And we were just talking about Iago. It's not heartbreaking for what happens to him. It's just heartbreaking for what happens to Desdemona, for what Othello does. Um, even I feel pity for Rodrigo, the poor Rodrigo, my goodness. You know, it's just heartbreaking. It's, things did not have to go this direction. The brakes could have been pumped at any point and Iago could have been found out. There's so many opportunities, especially this is why it's so hard for me to like, to find sympathy for Othello. He just had to do a little bit of work to confirm his wife's faithfulness. At any point during Acts 2, 3, 4, or 5, a little bit of work, and none of this had to happen. It's heartbreaking to me. Okay, but then that means, according to Aristotle, you're heartbroken for the wrong reason. Why? Because I wanted it to be... um, Because we're meant to sympathize with the hero. And the catharsis, the pity and terror is meant to be, according to Aristotle, obviously who is descriptive rather than proscriptive of what tragedy should be. Um, 
the heartbreak should be, I thought I was such a good man. How could this happen to such a good man? Uh, I feel pity and terror. Yeah. But it's not that simple. We can't just read it as Aristotle suggests we should. But, right. Um, yeah, I, I actually... put forward the idea that maybe the play has failed for you if you don't sympathize with Othello. This is a really, this is a really fun question. Yeah, I thought as an actor and a director, you'd like that question, yeah. I, uh, I don't think that it's failed for me. Okay, okay, so let me try to spell this out. I d- we've talked on previous shows that I don't know that Aristotle, there's so much of Shakespeare's tragedy that seems to conform to Aristotle's kind of vision of a classic tragedy, but I think mm. it's different in some kind of profound ways. Um, Absolutely. He, right. does, he, he innovates. Shakespeare innovates. He does. He does. Yeah. And I think Oedipus, who was loved and adored, or the play was loved and adored by Aristotle, Oedipus is different than Macbeth, and not just in like his moral sentiments, but I think as a literary character, I think he's structured differently. But now we're getting into the weeds. I don't want to get into the weeds. I think Othello the play is still a successful play for me mm-hmm. despite the fact that I did lose sympathy for Othello. I think he's a great warrior. I don't know that he's a great man. Mm. There's this line from um, a song that I like. I wish I could remember. Um, more of the lyrics, but it, the gist of it is it's, it's a sister singing to her brother who's going off to war and her kind of conclusion when she, when he comes back from war is he's this different person. He's become really Mm. jaded um, person. And her kind of concluding remark is, that the army is good at making soldiers, but it's not as good at making men. And I feel that way about Othello. I feel like he is a most capable soldier, perhaps the most capable of his time, but I don't know that he's, and there are aspects of him that are for sure honorable, but I don't know that I have the sort of, I don't have the sort of respect for him. Um, that would make his demise a, a, a fulfilling Aristotelian tragedy. Mm. I'm more heartbroken for Desdemona. And I'm also, yeah. I'm, I'm heartbroken for Othello because it didn't, he didn't have to do this. He did not have to do this. But he did, it was in the title. The title of Othello be more of I, I love what you were saying about the warrior and the lover. Um, just want to go back to that for a sec. He's he's talking to um, Graciano after he's killed Desdemona and he's starting to realise that he's done the wrong thing. He says, but oh, vain boast, who can control his fate? And then he says, here is my journey's end. Here is my butt and very sea mark of my utmost sail. And he seems to realise that this is the end of the conquest. Mm. And he again, he sounds like Ulysses, who's he's almost battle weary. Yeah, he's he's come to the end of his sea voyage, 
And what he's actually talking about metaphorically here is he's, he's going to plant this Spanish sword in his own breast and die. Um, does that not make you feel sad for him? <laughs> it, do, it does. So I think I do have sympathy for him but not in the way that I think Aristotle wants me to see a great man with one, um, with one flaw, namely his jealousy. Aristotle, I think Aristotle might want me to say, Othello is a great man, but for his jealousy. That's his fatal flaw. Yeah, yeah it's not ambition, which is interesting. So often it's pride. Right, which would be Macbeth's case. It is pride a bit, though, isn't it? Because he's so obsessed with his reputation yeah. that the accusation that Desdemona has slept with his uh, lieutenant Cassio is deeply damaging to his pride. Um, and he gets so hooked on that notion that he doesn't even fully properly investigate whether or not it's true. Right. So you could still say he has hubris, he has pride, but it's not pride in the form of ambition. Right, right. It's pride to do with honor and reputation. Um, do you know what I read again this week was um, C.S. Lewis's experiment and criticism? Oh, yeah. Because I was trying to teach my class at the beginning of, of the term, how should we read a, read a tragedy? Like, yeah. What is the right way to read it? And there's a section by C.S. Lewis. He says, we mustn't make the mistake of the literary reader who gets so sucked into the tragedy that he wants to... Um, make tragedy into real life. And so we, we had a look at that idea. Um, and we had some interesting art, you know, discussions about what is art, what is life, is life art, is life tragic? And I was very much standing with C.S. Lewis and saying, no, 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 life is not tragic. Life is kind of a mixture of tragedy and comedy. And tragedy is high art because it extracts all of the sad moments of life and elevates them into this tragic form. And um, there's a great bit of Thomas Reimer. Do you remember that early critic? No, no. Who I mentioned, who, who called it the, the tragedy of the handkerchief and he called it a bloody cross. But he particularly hates the ending of this play. Mm. And I think he makes this mistake of the literary reader of wanting the play to do something that it's not meant to, is meant to it's meant to give us a window into another world, isn't it? And he says, at the end, Reimer says, what instruction can we make of this catastrophe? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. If I had written it, I would have done it like <laughs> this. And he said, Desdemona could have dropped the handkerchief and missed it that very day after her marriage. It might have been rumpled up with her wedding sheets and that on the night she lay in her wedding dress, the fairy napkin, whilst Othello was stifling her, might have just started up to disarm his fury and stop his ungracious mouth. And so he's, he's kind of rewriting the ending as to how he thinks it should have, should have happened. And then he said, then she could have lain as dead in a trance, pretending to be dead. Then might he, believing her dead, touched with remorse, have honestly cut his own throat by the good leave and with the applause of all the spectators who might thereupon have gone home with a quiet mind, admiring the beauty of Providence, fairly and truly represented in the theatre. <laughs> it just made me laugh so much. <laughs> I mean, like, first of all, to kind of like say, here's how I would improve 
Shakespeare, yeah, exactly. like one of his grand tragedies. Like you're kind of like stepping <laughs> into really thin ice as it is. So yeah. it sounds to me that that critic sees the purpose of the play to be chiefly, it sounds like kind of moral instruction to reward yeah, exactly. and to punish badness. And it's a lesson, yeah. We don't get that in this play for sure. No, that's and right. And the question is, is it still a good play? Is it even perhaps a great play despite the fact that it does not do that? Yeah, it is a great play. And I think the ending is great, uh, especially because as we were discussing earlier, the it might have been off the air actually, that the, the peripatia and the anagnorismos two of Aristotle's um, kind of conventions happen simultaneously. So, And what are those words, Sarah-Jane? The peripatia is the reversal, is the moment at which the protagonist realizes that um, everything he thought was right was actually wrong and his whole world gets flipped upside down. Mm-hmm. And then the anagnorismos is the moment of discovery where he recognizes that actually what he's done was completely wrong. And um, that all happens all at once, doesn't it, in Act 5? Right. Rothello. Because he realizes that Iago was lying, that Desdemona was true. Mm -hmm. And he accordingly sees what he's done. Yeah. Yeah. He should have killed her. And that, for the audience, is is a huge wrench. Yeah. And you can see it as well. Shakespeare makes it so tense because he's holding off, holding off, holding off. Othello's denying it, denying it, denying it. He doesn't want to see the truth before his eyes. And then we get that speech that you read so beautifully where he's actually, he's crying his eyes out. Hmm. It's a very I, theatrical ending. There's lots of meta-theatrical stuff yes, going on. Yes, for sure. Curtains on the bed being closed and, Yeah. And I agree with you. It's a great play. It's such a great play. I don't think that it snugly fits Aristotle's um, kind of view of tragedy. However, I do think it succeeds in that oft-debated purpose of Aristotle that the point is to purge us of it's to burn off the excess emotions. That is the purpose of theater. It is to kind of like experience these things secondhand. And so these feelings that we have are burned off in a catharsis. I think, I think ultimately that's the reason for me why this play is so good is because (laughs) I don't want these events to happen, you know? I don't want this sort of thing to happen in the world. And it happened here on the stage and it was absolutely believable. And there's something very emotionally relieving about being able to walk out of the theater, yeah. having seen what just happened and, and like, want that to not happen in the world. It's, it's, for me, this play, the ending of it, the feeling that I have at the ending of it, is so similar to the feeling that I have at the end of Romeo and Juliet, which is also like a world classic. It's a brilliant, brilliant play. There are so many things that had to go wrong for the ending to end up the way that it did. And it's just, <laughs> it would be the most cliche in the world. It's just so tragic. 
Yeah, heartbreaking, as you said. I know yeah. if, we, if we put it in the context of a pagan world, that's slightly kind of wrenching things a bit because obviously it's, Othello's not written in that context. But if you went to the theatre in ancient Greece, then I absolutely get why the dramatists had to deliver this sense of emotional cleansing because there is no salvation forgiveness, repentance in a pagan world. It's just fate and capricious gods. So then theatre and tragedy is delivering something that is kind of serving like almost like a public function mm. in the polis. that people need to be cleansed of um, their sense of the world being unrighteous and full of injustice. But I don't know, watching it or reading it as a Christian, it's different, I think, because... There is, uh, there is repentance, and repentance and metanoia is much more powerful than catharsis. Mm. There is forgiveness and salvation. Um, I read and this. And seems to know this. Have you read the bit? There was a bit that made me think of Dante and all of those amazing paintings in, on the west wall of all the churches in the Renaissance in Italy. Um, when he realizes he's going to hell. Do you remember that bit? No. Uh, he says, I'll meet you at Compt and all the devils will, um, let me just find it. Here it is. He says to Desdemona, just before he kills himself, when we shall meet at Compt, so like at the final reckoning on the day of judgment, yeah. this look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven and oh, yeah. will snatch at it. Yeah. He says, whip me, ye devils, from the possession of this heavenly sight, blow me about in winds, roast me in sulfur, wash me in steep down gulfs of liquid fire. And, and he has this vision of what eternity is going to be like for him. And it's terrifying. Yeah, right. And that's not something that the Greek playwrights could really play around with in the same kind of way because I, I just don't think they were able to ever say that the death of a character would result in a particular outcome. It was never clear, was it? Because you right. go to Hades and Radamanthus would decide what would happen to you. And it might be Elysium Fields or it might not. It's funny that we're talking about this because we just finished our podcast on the Odyssey. And right. the book of the Odyssey is another descent into the underworld. And so we're there with Agamemnon and Achilles, these great heroes of Greek culture and the Iliad. And it is kind of peculiar because it is just this sort of, it's almost like a waiting room in a doctor's office is Hades. It doesn't seem <laughs> particularly uncomfortable. It doesn't, of course, seem very comfortable. And what are they doing? It's just, it's like a limbo. You know, yeah. there's not, there's not like a Agamemnon who suffers this terribly ignoble fate. His wife kills him upon his return from Troy. He, he's just kind of hanging out with Achilles and he's, there's no, it doesn't seem like the scales of justice are, are weighed in, in Hades. It's just a place where you go when life has ended. Yeah. Um, but to your point, Othello has this pretty clear vision of the stakes that await him, the kind of fate that awaits him potentially after his death. And it's a lot like Dante's Inferno. Right. Um, yeah. 
and paintings. Yeah, it's almost like a comic book caricature vision of what. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you remember right at the beginning of the the play? We were in Act One, and you you were saying some really interesting things about how it almost begins like a comedy. Mm. Um. And I wondered about that as well, because it's really interesting. Shakespeare, again, doesn't do, as you said at the beginning, really what, uh, what a tragedy should do. So Thomas Hayward in 1612 has written a tract called An Apology for Actors. And in it, he discusses quite a lot of things uh, to do with tragedy and acting. And he says, tragedies and comedies differ thus. In comedies, turbulentula prima, tranquilla ultima which means comedies begin with trouble and end in peace. Mm. In tragedies, tranquilla prima, turbulenta ultima. Tragedies begin in calms and end in tempest. Tragedies begin in calms and end in tempest. But I really don't get the sense at the end of Othello that it has ended in a tempest. It seems calm. It seems like everything's finished. There's no revenge cycle Mm. because Othello is an individual with no family. He's taken revenge upon himself, so that's finished. Cassio is now in control of Cyprus. And Gratiano, whose name presumably means something to do with grace or graceful, has um, kind of picked up the reins and is going to clean up Iago. And everything seems to be restored to a sense of calm and order. I I took that, the critic that you just read, as not that the final resting place is a tempest, but that the final scene is a tempest. I see. So maybe I've gone a step too far. Because, because hmm. to, again, to use Oedipus, Oedipus begins in calm, and the tempest is his self-discovery. He puts his eyes out. He exiles himself. But when he exiles himself, I think there's, there's kind of peace. We have a new ruler on the throne. Presumably the plague is going to disappear. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I see Othello in the same way. There's a tempest. Othello strangles Desdemona. Amelia is stabbed. Iago imprisoned. Othello commits suicide. And I think there's at least some sort of kind of like peace on the other side of that tempest. Yeah, I do agree. But it doesn't begin in calm. Agreed. Things. Yeah, agreed. Disruption in the middle of the night in the streets with Iago and Brabantio. There's a, a massive waiting to attack Cyprus. And then there's an actual storm. Right. We get like an eye of the storm at the end of one when we see mm. that Desdemona is like really in love with Othello. Othello is really in love with Desdemona. Desdemona's father is clearly unhappy with the pairing. but there's this kind of agreement, okay, the marriage is going to persist and we need our great warrior to go fight. But things seem like they're a little bit like at the beginning of a traditional tragedy. They seem at the end of act one. Yeah. Kind of calm. Yeah. It's almost like it's two plays, act one and then acts two through five. Right, exactly, as we said, because they move to a whole new setting and a whole new world, yeah. which is often what happens in a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. What's really sad as well is that at the end, because often in a comedy what happens is that the parents come back on the stage and everybody's reconciled and the family is kind of 
brought back together and there's a feast. But at the end of this play, we learn that Brabantio is dead, that he's died of a broken heart. So that really plays into your description of the act five as heartbreaking. Good. Yeah. So for me, um, I don't know, final thoughts on the play. But let's just look at the final line. Yeah. This is so Shakespeare and it's so, uh, I can just see how a dramatist and an actor would do this, how he would love to do this. He does it at the end of Hamlet. This heavy act with heavy heart relates. So Lodovico says, myself will straight abroad and to the state this heavy act with heavy heart relate. So Lodovico is going to go back to Venice and tell the doge the story. And so in a sense, at the end of the play, it starts again. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's the same at the end of Hamlet, where Hamlet says to um, Horatio, report my cause aright. Fortinbras comes in. And then Horatio, at the end of the play, he, gets, he kind of gets up and says, let me tell you what's happened. Yeah. And the play starts again. Yeah. What, what are you, where are you left at the end, at the very end of this play? I think I need to kind of cry into my pillow a little bit. <laughs> like I told you, like I... But at least you're not angry like Reimer saying, I could have written a better ending for this. No, 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 no. I could never, no. I think in a way it's, it's, the conclusion is of a whole with the beginning in the middle. I mean, I, I think... It is a complete piece of tragic theater and it's fantastic. It just breaks my heart. And I don't think that's the worst thing to have my heart broken over things that are like wildly unjust and unfair and Mm. when the innocent die. Mm. I'll tell you who was really fascinating to me in Act 5. Yeah. Briefly, is Cassio. Because I was pretty hard on him uh, after he got drunk. Do you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was pretty hard on him. But Did he redeem himself? Happened... Sorry? Did he redeem himself in Act 5? Well, Iago says that he hates Cassio because he hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. Mm. And I was thinking, hang on a minute. Iago says that Cassio is beautiful. What does he mean? Why is Iago jealous of beauty in Cassio's life? And because all the way through, I've kind of seen Cassio as this this Florentine, this puffed up Florentine who's a little bit ridiculous and has um, ornate clothes and ridiculous manners and things. But at the end of the play, Cassio has seen so much and he's been stabbed. He's been accused of all kinds of things he's not guilty of. And... When Othello dies, Cassio says, he was great of heart. He was great of heart. That's the last thing Cassio says. Mm. And it's praise of Othello. And and then I thought, yeah, Cassio is beautiful, actually. Hmm. You turned around on him. It did. And he now is going to be in charge of Cyprus. And I think maybe, I don't know, is it going to be okay for him? Will he get together with Bianca? What... A yeah, I wonder, I wonder. Mm. And all the way through the play, he's actually been on the rise. He gets promoted to lieutenant and he gets to be promoted to governor of Cyprus. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. There's clearly people see things in him that are worthy of elevating. 
definitely. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to sing his own praises, does he? He's it's right. the mouth of others that praise him. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Cassio, I think in the final scene does quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Sarah Jane, let's put a bow on the end of the play, knowing that we've got questions and answers. So one more um, podcast, we'll take questions and answers. So if you've been following us, listeners, the Close Reads Facebook page is the current home for the Plays the Thing Q&A. So if you've got questions about the tragedy of Othello that you would like for Sarah Jane and I to wrangle with and sarah jane this is going to be hard because we don't get a whole lot of prep on this we just kind of like <laughs> live studio audience we will do our best to, to answer them sarah jane any closing thoughts about the tragedy of othello i just i yeah i love i loved it i um i feel like it was time well spent reading it again um, that it wasn't a moral lesson of any kind, but that it yeah. was a full work of art. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you need to apologize to listeners that I think at the end of most of our episodes, we kind of said, yeah, next time we need to look at this and we need to look at this and then we just never do. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. true. I'm, I'm the worst at that. I'm very guilty of that. Me too. Kind of non-linear. Yeah. Non-linear. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really looking forward to these questions. I want to know what, people's thoughts are yeah me too me too well hey um thanks so much we will see you next week at our next recording and from all of us this has been the plays the thing act five of othello thanks so much for joining us and happy reading